Does it sometimes feel like your brain is going in a million different directions? Juggling work, parenting and trying to keep your mental health and well-being intact isn't easy. But what if there was a way to become boss of your own brain? Hi, I'm Tracy Challoner, and in this Life Education podcast for parents, we're talking about food, mood and brain health. According to award-winning QUT neuroscientist Professor Selena Bartlett, When we understand how the brain works and how stress leads to unhealthy habits, we can build brain resilience, which leads to better mental strength and a healthier lifestyle. Sound compelling? Well, to tell us more about her fascinating research, Selena joins our Life Education podcast. Hi, Selena. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me and I look forward to speaking and reaching out to your audience. Selena, it has been a stressful year for a lot of people. We're hearing a lot about mental health issues right now. From a neuroscience perspective, how can we get our day off to a more positive start? The causal factors have to be addressed first. And at the moment, because of COVID, I can't emphasise enough how critically important this is for our country. So to start when you wake up in the morning because the brain will do everything you set it to do. So start in the morning by simply looking out the window at the sky because it will calm the brain first. So the more strategies you can build into your morning routine, whether it's making your bed, looking out the window, doing your exercise, goes a long way to calming your brain. So this is circular thing and it all starts with mitigating the way stress is wired into your brain. If you want to have a quick check on your mood, food is a great way to do that. So if we're reaching for bad stuff. You know you're very stressed. If you're eating without being aware of what you're eating, and I'll have examples that I've talked to people where they'll say to me, they've got lolly wrappers or candy wrappers on the car seat, on the floor of the car, and they have no idea when they ate it, Yeah. as an example. Or they'll have a packet of chips and it'll be empty and they go, oh my God, I don't know when I did that. So that's an example of a stressed brain trying to relieve stress. Mm-hmm. So to get on top of that takes daily training and it starts the first minute you wake in the morning. And this has such a profound effect on your family and its environment. And what does it mean? It means you're getting to know how your brain works and you're powering your brain. And that's where it starts from. And then food and mood follow from understanding that. Yeah, I love the idea of building brain resilience or retraining the mindset. And I've heard you talk a number of times about taming the Miggy monster. And Miggy's the amygdala, that part of the brain that processes emotions like fear and danger. So you're saying that stress activates the amygdala, but if we can control that response and put the rational brain in charge, we can override some of those unhealthy food impulses or behaviours. It's not even overriding it. It's building a new circuit. Um, It's it's a new habit because your habits have come to you from multiple generations of habits. What are some practical ways that you can become boss of your own brain? Uh, I mean, how can you recognize when you're stressed and the amygdala is taking over? What are some practical things you can do? It's critical to start your day well. So what I mean by that, my killer morning routine is from the minute you wake, your brain's going to direct you to good and bad things. I call it path A versus path B. In path A, it's simple but not easy because you're creating some new routines. As soon as you wake, instead of reaching through your phone and scanning through your Facebook feed, which is quite stressful, understand your brain processes everything without you even knowing it. What's happening when you're scanning these feeds is the brain, because this part of the brain is so old, 
it takes in negative information, whether it's sights, sounds or smells, at 10 times the rate of positive information. It does that subconsciously beyond your awareness because that's what it's wired to do. Well, we could do without that at the start of the day. Well, we can, but but we have to understand that that's what it does because how do you know? You know, this is where the knowledge raises all boats. Having that awareness. Exactly. Without that awareness, the brain's always in charge, always. It has been for centuries. Mm -hmm. So why I say that to you, when I say to you your morning routine is you're consciously driving in positive. You have to consciously drive in positive into the brain because the brain will always default to negative. It's just what it does unless it's trained not to. And so when you look out the window, when you're doing your exercise, when you're making the bed, when you're thinking about three things you're grateful for, as soon as you wake in the morning, that simple little routine is already telling your brain that you're in charge. It's a case of start how you mean to go really, isn't it? Getting your day off to a good start. And basically the brain is always operating on what it's paying attention to. Right. And so while you're doing these three routines, you're basically forcing the brain out of being negative. So is it fair to say that the more we scan for the positives, the more our brain starts to yes. have that positive mindset? Well, it has to because that's what you, that's how it works. That's what you're you know, feeding. The, exactly. And, and the brain will do whatever you give it. You become the boss of the brain. That's what I mean by that. That's exactly what I mean. Because every brain's so different. One thing doesn't work for everybody. So I told you that because that works for me. But for someone else, it might be simply going and looking at their baby and having a smile. Make the first thing the best thing, not the first thing being the most negative thing, which is like, oh my God, I've got all these emails and oh my God, I've got so much work to do. Or, oh my God, I've got to make the lunches. This is me, by the way. I've got to get the kids to school. They're always late. I've got to get to my lab by nine. I've got this meeting at 9.30. Oh my God, I haven't prepared for that. And that was my morning routine. That's the reality, isn't it, for a lot of parents? I mean, in a perfect world, we would get up at 5 a.m., we'd do some meditation, we'd have some time for exercise. Yeah, and... but, you don't, but you don't need to do that. You right. Don't, it's five, five minutes. Is starting all it takes. your day with, it's five minutes first. Yeah. So what I'm telling you is they're simple little things. They make a massive difference. They all add up. You don't need to get up and think, now I'm going to meditate, now I'm going to exercise. No. You can't do that. It's too hard, especially when you're a young parent or any parent, to be honest. <laughs> um, you just got to start small. Start small. Think of three things you're grateful for. Yeah, that's a great way to start the day. And they are simple things that you can incorporate into your day. And something a doctor told me once was if you get a bit of light on your eyelids first thing in the morning, that hits your yes. pituitary gland and that makes you feel more awake and positive. So I always try to walk out on my back deck with my coffee and yeah, it does, you look feel at the light and the trees. And, and, even, if, and even if you can't do that because your kids are screaming because they want you straight away or something, mm -hmm. just look out the window. Well, if you can't even do that, I say wiggle your toes. <laughs> okay. And, and I say that, I'm not saying that in a kind of flippant way. I'm saying that because so many people aren't able to wiggle their toes and they'd be loving to wiggle their toes. And it just starts to take the brain outside itself and make, and make you more aware of how lucky you are. And, you know, even, I know that's a simple thing, but it's big actually in this world. Mm. that you can wiggle your toes and you have this life to live. And and it's immediately stopping the brain from just going over and over and over all the things you haven't done or you've got to do. Oh, my God, you know, we, what are we going to do about this job and that job and money and mortgages? You know, it's a, we're trying to live a life that's complicated, even though we're wealthy. 
but those simple little strategies, they matter because you're taking control of your brain health, like you take care of your body health and how you look. Well, we've all been looking for ways to get a bit more of that dopamine, that feel-good chemical into our lives this year. That's the chemical that makes us feel motivated and, and I guess, happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Research shows things like exercise, meditation, a healthy diet, even social contact can naturally boost dopamine levels in the brain. But what are some other, apart from those, things that we can do that are easy and we can incorporate into our day? You mentioned wiggling your toes, and I'm trying that now while I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, another another good one for your audience right now. I, I like to call it disarming your enemy. <laughs> okay. Because you know how we're always threatened by people leaving us out or whatever it is that mm-hmm. we're anxious about. So right now, whoever's listening to your podcast, including you, just sit straight up and put your shoulders back. Right. And take a deep breath. And if people are standing somewhere, they can do that too, or they can put their arms up to the sky or whatever it is you want to do. So now do the opposite. Now drop your arms down by your knees and Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, slouch. Yeah. Now see how you feel. Is there a difference in how you feel? So basically when you're pushing your shoulders back, it's the dominant position in the animal hierarchy. Yes. And you get an increase in, um, you know, feeling more confident compared to in the slouching position, Mm -hmm. for example. What you're doing there is you're taking control of your brain. Just by changing your posture, you're sending a powerful message to your brain that you're calm and confident. Yeah, well, it's immediately training your amygdala. Just want to touch on your research because your research explores how our brains respond to the stress of addictive behaviours like binging on sweet foods, drinking and smoking. When it comes to food, though, I think many of us can relate to using food to medicate when we're stressed, bored or unhappy. I guess we call it comfort eating. Yes, emotional eating. Why is it that kids and adults alike often want the chocolate bar and the chips when life is challenging, even though we know it's much healthier to grab an apple or a banana? Why do we do that? We learnt um, over a long period of time that that makes us feel better from untrained, unmitigated stress. So stress is wired into the brain. Is it our brain seeking pleasure? Is that part of the problem? Absolutely, because the brain doesn't like too much stress. It kills off the synapses and the brain won't do that because it's an amazing machine. Its main job is to keep you here and alive. And if you're not training out your stress by doing brain training, you know, like exercise, you know, these healthier things, then your brain actually drives you to seek dopamine-seeking things like donuts and chocolate. It's it's a wiring mechanism. It's a learnt behavior. So it's an actual circuit that's been trained in the brain over decades. My mother, for example, not trying to put my family under the bus here, but it's, it's just helpful. So once upon a time before my mother was brain training, she used to have four little kids at home and she would get me to go and buy her bars of chocolate <laughs> that she would hide under the pillow. Um, I didn't know anything because I was 10 years old back then. Um, but clearly um, she was using it because she was really stressed out. And then that's what I learned to do. I watched her behavior. I didn't know any different. And then I would be getting that too. And I'd be doing the same thing for myself. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered in my 40s is that I was doing the same thing because I was not training my stress. I was letting my brain do it for me. So the brain does it. It's a, it's a very specific mechanism in the brain. It's in a certain part of the brain. So stress part of the brain is wired to pleasure part of the brain. Mm-hmm. They go hand in hand. 
and and the and the brain's so clever, of course, it's going to do that, right? So the reason it happens so quickly is because that part of the brain is in the subconscious, unconscious aware part of your brain. It's the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens. And so before you know it, um, at work, for example, because we're not mitigating our stress on a daily basis, then just say you have a bunch of things happen, whether it's emails or someone looks at you in a funny way or you feel excluded from yes. something. Yeah. Um, and, and this is not just work. This is life. It's my children. It's everybody. Mm-hmm. Then before you know it, you go to the vending machine for example, at work, or you duck in to get a bag of lollies or chips or whatever it is that's your thing. Mm. For me, for me, it was sugar. And I didn't know this. I was totally unaware of this. And But now I don't do that because I'm really aware of it. I've learned about it and my brain. Your research basically has identified two pretty alarming things about sugar, hasn't it? That yep. A, A, it's addictive, and B, that it does change the physical and chemical structure of the brain in those ways Absolutely. that you talked about. So is that why sometimes when we eat sugary foods, it actually makes us feel more on edge and anxious? It makes us feel worse. So we, I was an alcohol addiction research lab. Sugar were the controls in our experiment. Right. On my way back to Australia, my collaborator at Stanford rang me and said, Selena, you won't believe this, but the animals that are drinking sugar, are cha- their brain's changing exactly the same way as alcohol and nicotine. Gosh. I did, I did not believe it. So when I got back here, I had a PhD student replicate this work over four years. So we were able to show that sugar is activating exactly the same parts of the brain that alcohol and nicotine do. It's actually activating the same receptors in the brain. Um, And that just was frightening to me. I was shocked. And so, yes, it's changing um, the prefrontal cortex. So that's where impulse control sits. That's the part of the brain that makes you stop taking the second donut, for example. Mm -hmm. The causal factor is stress. And stress over a long period of time is leading to this. So I just want to uh, let everyone know that. Mm-hmm. So the second alarming thing to me, I was running marathons and training at the time, but I was struggling to lose weight around my belly and my thighs because I'd had children. I was really stressed out. I'd had a running a big lab. I wasn't taking care of myself and I'd put on a lot of weight when I was before I came back to Australia. And the type of food over there in America is quite different in what's getting like that here, but it's large portion sizes, lots of sugar in the food, particularly fructose, which yeah. you, you want to talk about. So I had no idea because I was studying alcohol. And then all of a sudden, everything became super clear. Oh my God, that was me. I was using sugar to medicate my stress. I was the one going to the vending machine. I was the one not exercising and I was the one not taking care of my stress for example, at a personal level, and I'm studying it for a long time. <laughs> so you can imagine how I felt. But anyway, immediately what I did, I started to reduce sugar. So I was the one that could never feel full too after eating sugar. And so then I read all the papers in the area and uh, obviously our lab showed it was addictive, which made it difficult to give up. But the thing that about it, it's the fructose in sugar that's become embedded in our food. So it's not just lollies and candy. No, if you go and look at across foods, when I started to look at the packaging and to see what I was eating, outside carbs and everything else I was doing, it was everywhere. So when I then made the step of trying to reduce sugar in my diet, I was shocked to see how much I was actually eating. 
I think you actually said in one of your research papers that 75% of all foods and beverages contain sugar. So we're, we're really yeah. up against it, aren't we? Yeah, we, we are. And, and it was stressful to discover that, to be honest. Uh, the thing that really changed for me personally and then what I see now in my lab, we're doing a whole lot of research in this area now in terms of how it affects the brain. But the big, big thing for me was as I started to reduce my sugar intake, basically I got my appetite back. So when I ate, I started to feel full again from the food I subsequently ate. So it's the fructose affects the hypothalamus, which turns off these peptides that make you feel full. Those peptides are called ghrelin and leptin, which you would have heard about possibly. But that meant that I was never full from eating, which meant I could eat a lot for my size and my height. This is a great place to start for yourself because whether it's sugar, some people it's cheese, some people it's wine, some people it's highly processed foods. Everyone's got a thing that soothes them. Oh, for sure. Cheese and crackers is is my thing. Yeah, exactly. Without recognizing you're doing that because all of this stress is built up in your brain and it's never been trained because that's the underlying cause. Sugar, alcohol, they're just outcomes. They're not the problem. There's another problem that's driving it. That's what I'm working on now. Before I was working on addiction, but now I'm working on the underlying causes, which is way more powerful for everybody to understand. That's why saying brain science is going to change mental health treatments. Well, I hope it will. Mm. Um, But anyway, so the the sugar alcohol thing, yes, it gives you immediate pleasure because you get a release of dopamine in this part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is very much your motivation part of your brain, the part that makes you seek pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, But like alcohol, as you know, you feel awful the next day or the day after, right? It's got a long-term negative effect because it's not helping the real cause. It's just giving you short-term Band-Aid solutions. But the problem with sugar, particularly um, in terms of obesity, is the way the fructose energy is because it's so much energy for our bodies, our bodies can't cope with it. So it gets stored in what we call the visceral fat cells, which are these cells that line our stomach and thighs, for example. Um, they're like little cancer cells and they multiply. So, they, so they're like, it's like gas chambers in a way. And that's and a dangerous store. fat, isn't it? That's the really bad yeah, fat, well, visceral they, fat. Yeah, well, we're not meant to have it. Our bodies aren't exercising enough to get rid of it. Um, so they multiply and then to get rid of those little cells, you never get rid of them, you can shrink them, but but they're difficult because that's why people say as you get older, why is it so hard for me to lose weight now? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, I, and I was exactly that person, I hadn't hit menopause yet or anything, but I was struggling to lose weight in those areas and I just thought that's how it was because I'd had children and it was my age. No, I'm here to tell you I'm. it is not right. That is wrong. And as I took out sugar, I increased my exercise, I got my waistline back and I flattened my stomach without doing extreme amounts of anything. So I I just got it wrong. That's encouraging for a lot of women because I think we can all relate to that. Do we even know how much sugar we should be eating? What's the recommended daily amount? Well, so it's it's much less than you'd hope it to be. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like six teaspoons for women, nine for men, and only three for children. Wow. Some people would have that before they even walk out the front door in the morning. Yeah, well, like <laughs> for, for example, a fruit-laden yogurt, low-fat yogurt, contains more sugar than a can of Coke. 
Almost. And a lot of those soda drinks have so much sugar in them and kids are having them a a lot, aren't they? And don't even think of it as soda. Think of it as any beverage almost, Mm -hmm. whether it's – and even kombucha has sugar in it. Yeah. So this is the thing, like – we get things labelled as healthy, but everything's been upscaled and upsized. Um, we d- we actually don't know how much we're having, and that's a really big issue. And it's just one of the issues. All food's been upsized and upscaled in terms of portion sizes too. So it's difficult, you know, because we have so much abundance and it's marketed so it looks really healthy. Even if you go to a beautiful, healthy cafe and the amount of food you're getting served now is so much more than your body can handle, even if it's healthy. That's right. Yeah. And many parents will tell you uh, when their kids come home from school, they feel tired and irritable and they want something sweet. I know with my kids, they're teenagers now, but they seem to crave sugar at that time of day. Is there, yeah. a, is there a neuroscience reason why kids want that sugar oh, hit absolutely. in the afternoon? How can we convince absolutely. them to eat something um, healthier? This is, goes back to the cause and you know, why we need to be changing the education. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, because basically, um, I, I'd love to share with you, but there's a whole list of things that are happening in our youth and teenagers that never even happened 20 years ago mm-hmm. around social media, around um, parental pressures, around financial pressures, pr- pressures to perform. Absolutely, um, yeah. We, we would call these first world pressures, but they're real. Mm. Um, and and they're happening across our youth. So um, and there's about a list of 25 things that our young people are faced with now that we weren't right. uh, just 20 years ago. Whether it's you know violence, um, sexual images, yes. uh, you know, all of these things, and and their their brains processing it mm. overloaded. So then. outside outside the social pressures of being at school, um, which we all know about ourselves because we all dealt with those. Now they have pressures with both parents working and I'm not against it. I'm just saying that family has broken down a lot. Um, It's just not the same anymore, even though they look like they have more things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Back to this stressed out in the afternoons. So what we talked about was a vending machine for adults at work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same for children coming home from school. Yeah. Mum and the fridge and the pantry is the vending machine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. For all of us, to be honest. Ours might be beer (laughs) o'clock or wine (laughs) o'clock. That's right. But for kids, it's three o'clock. And it's it's so much pressure on parents, to be honest. I'm a parent too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't do a great job. I just did the best I could with the knowledge I had, which which can always be better. But we're all trying our best. And if people are listening to your podcast, is because they care, mm-hmm. and every parent I've met loves their children. So Absolutely. it's no, I'm not. It's there's no one to blame here. It's just it is where we are. Mm-hmm. There's some little strategies we can do to help make it a little bit better and easier for yourself and for the children because obesity kills and diabetes is now one of the leading causes in children. Like children should not get type two diabetes. Mm. And it's one of the leading causes of ill health in children outside the mental health crisis that's happening. And it's from too much food, too much sugar, too much processed food. Mm. We can do something about that, right? Yeah, we can. It's hard, but we can, but it's difficult. <laughs> we, we have to really, don't we? Because the, the forecasts for obesity in the next 25 years in Australia oh. are terrible, aren't they? 
Well, 70% um, of people in Australia are going to be overweight or obese by 2025. Wow. And now, and I now predict that that's probably going to be higher because of COVID. Mm. So COVID has amplified this because people are eating and drinking more because the stress around COVID has amplified anything that was happening before COVID, basically. You hear that anecdotally, don't you? Everyone's complaining about the weight they've put on this year and that they may be drinking yeah. a bit more and eating a bit more. Even without the anecdotes, it's now published in PLOS One. They did an acute mental health survey of Australians between March and April. So this is even before the second lockdown. And 55% of people have reported an increase in adverse mental health events. Well, you mentioned that increase in mental health issues. We've been talking about ways to rewire the brain for better mental health. I guess, though, some people, regardless of having a healthy diet and trying to have a positive mindset, may just have depression and need another approach for that, either professional help or medication. You're not opposed to that, are you? You're simply saying these are neuroscience tools that can help a lot of people. These are absolute tools, but I do know that the research is so strong to demonstrate that as you understand and become in charge of your brain power, things change. We do now have significant advances in brain science in the last 10 years. This is just a tool and we've got a long way to go, but there's no doubt that genomics, brain imaging and neuroscience are going to completely transform mental health treatments over the next 60 years or sooner would be my hope, but things take a long time to change. Like, think about how long it took took us to stop smoking, (laughs) for for example, and people still smoke, which is totally up to them. But we still needed the knowledge to know that that caused lung cancer. We can change our brain health by getting to know our brain a little bit, at least make it a little bit better to live with certain things. And I think if we're serious as a country to help each other to fend and flatten the COVID-19 mental health crisis, this knowledge needs to get into everyone's hands. And that's why I call it brain health is everyone's business. Well, it's a very empowering concept, isn't it? Thinking that we can, I guess, be a little bit more the masters of our own destiny and, and be the boss of our own brains. Just a little bit, even just a little bit goes a long way. Selena, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about neuroscience and the link between food and mood and, and also how to unlock some of the incredible potential of the human brain. It's just a yes, fascinating area that you work in. Oh, Tracy, thank you so much for caring to help parents um, in this modern age. It's not easy, is it? No, it's not. And let's hope we've given people something to think about. Thank you. I'm sure they're all doing the best they can. (laughs) I've been chatting to Professor Selena Bartlett, author and research leader in addiction neuroscience and obesity at the Translational Research Institute in Brisbane. You can find out more about Selena's work on her website, at selenab.com. I'm Tracy Chaloner, and this is the Life Education Podcast, where we reach out to experts to help with your parenting journey. And if there's a special topic you'd like us to look into for our parent podcast, you can find us at podcast at lifeeducation.org.au. Hope you've enjoyed our chat today. I look forward to joining you again soon.